This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. When patients with EDS go to a doctor who's like, has probably never seen EDS, gets all excited about it and says, hey, show me what you can do. That's when you say, no, I'm not going to show it to you because it's not going to help me in any way. It's just going to entertain you. I'm not doing it. Because remember, stretching your joint will stretch the ligament and that's going to damage it forever. Welcome back, every Bendy Body, to the Bendy Bodies podcast. I'm your host and founder, Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD, here to provide you with accessible information and inspiration about hypermobility disorders like EDS, HSD, Marfan syndrome, and so much more. Combining my medical expertise and personal experiences and my passion for the science and clinical treatment of symptomatic joint hypermobility, I also treat patients and coach clients to optimize their quality of life. So let's get after it. As always, this information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Today, we are so excited to have my friend and mentor, Dr. Pradeep Chopra, back with us for yet another great conversation. Before I welcome Dr. Chopra, let me introduce my friend and yours, Jennifer Milner, former professional ballet and Broadway dancer who trains hypermobile artists to work to their fullest potential. She knows a thing or two about being a bendy body. We are so fortunate to have Jen here today co-hosting this episode. Hey, Jen, it's so good to have you here. Hey, always good to be here. All right. And Dr. Pradeep Chopra is a Harvard-trained anesthesiologist, double board certified in pain management and anesthesiology, director of the Center for Complex Conditions and assistant professor, Brown Medical School, with a special interest in chronic complex pain conditions and their associated coexisting conditions. Dr. Chopra, hello, and welcome back to Bendy Bodies. Hello. Hi, this is Pradeep Chopra, and it's a pleasure and an honor again to be back uh, with you guys. Uh, Thoroughly enjoyed uh, doing the last two, three podcasts. I'm not even sure how many I lost count. (laughs) This is our third. Third one. But I'm happy to talk about EDS and my 30 years of experience in treating this condition. Fabulous. Well, we we love getting to learn from you and and always our listeners are very, very grateful for the information. And we did previously speak about pain in the abdomen, the chest, the head, uh, the neck, and the spine. And so I highly encourage listeners to check out those episodes as well. And today we are going to speak about pain in the extremities. So Dr. Chopra, maybe you can start off by telling us why this is such an important topic to cover when we're talking about Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. So I'm going to talk about, um, the reason I want to talk about upper extremities, uh, because we are covering the whole body part by part. And obviously, upper extremities are extremely important uh, for for a number of reasons. Um, It's also, uh, among all the body parts, it's the most used body part. Uh, the upper extremities. That's the one we use for our activities activities of daily living, writing, um, eating, everything else. Uh, and so we, before we go on to um, going on the upper extremity part, I, you know, after the last uh, podcast on, um, on abdominal pain, uh, there was something I wanted, I remembered we forgot to talk about. Um, and that was on 
uh, upper back pain. One of the reasons, actually one of the more common reasons for upper back pain, which is the area between the shoulder blades is actually gastroparesis. And it has been seen again and again, uh, patients with gastroparesis that is slowing down of their uh, stomach movements causes upper back pain. Um, so of all the reasons we talked about, just wanted to recap upper back pain, uh, gastroparesis, which is slowing down of the movement of the stomach con contents. Uh, the second was um, the, the posture, posture of the, the posture in which you hold your head and neck and the slouching posture. Uh, and then we talked about um, loose ribs and loose um, vertebra in the upper thoracic and cervical region. So these are the common reasons. Uh, there's another reason which is not particular in EDS, but it is common in, um, amongst everybody. Uh, and of course the EDSs have to get the, the non-EDS conditions as well as EDS conditions. Uh, and that is called repetitive strain injury. And that's from excessive use of your upper extremity. So we'll talk about that when we talk about upper extremities. Um, so starting from the top, uh, let's talk about um, shoulder pain. So the shoulder joint itself is, so when I talk about the shoulder joint, I mean the rounded portion uh, that you see, uh, the, the rounded portion of the shoulder is called the shoulder joint uh, for our discussion purposes. And this is generally made up of two joints. Um, one's called the glenohumeral joint, which is a bigger joint, which is a rounded portion. And then you have a tiny little joint next to it which you can barely see, and it's called the AC joint or the acromioclavicular joint, and they both hurt. So <clears throat> that's the problem. But in any case, the shoulder joint um, is one of the most unstable jo joints in, a, in the human body. It's not a very stable joint. Uh, actually, the two most unstable joints in my thinking are the TMJ and the shoulder joint. <clears throat> now, the shoulder joint is not a stable joint is because it needs an excessive range of motion. So you can literally turn your shoulder 360 degrees and that allows not exactly 360, but mostly 360. And the reason we have that movement is because evolutionary, from an evolutionary point of view, you need that movement to say, if you're being chased by a saber toothed tiger, you can you know climb up a tree or something. Or if you want to hunt mm. uh, a mammoth for, you know, a woolly mammoth for dinner, you can throw a spear at it. Uh, so you need that range of movement and that range of movement is what, the, the price we pay for getting that excessive range of movement is loss of muscle around it. And to give you an example, the hip joint is, is an extremely stable joint and it is packed with muscles all around it. It's a deep joint, but its range of motion is just very lousy. All it does is it moves backwards and forwards. So, so, so in contrast, the shoulder joint is a very flexible joint. It's not a super stable joint. And obviously in EDSers, uh, it's, it, it becomes a problem. <laughs> At this point, I'd like to talk about why do EDSers have a loose shoulder joint? What happens? It starts, you have to go back to your childhood. Most people with EDS have, they're very flexible and they are, you know, and because of their flexibility, they're always chosen to be in, in all sorts of dances, which as you guys know, uh, they're always chosen for ice skating and cheerleading and all of those exercises, um, sports and athletics. And that's this is the point at which their shoulders get damaged. So for all of the parents who are listening to this, um, this is a very cautionary move I would suggest is 
to avoid any of these at a young age. Or if you are going to do it, be very careful that they do not have an excessive range of motion to their shoulders. Because once a joint is overstretched, there is very little chance of it ever going back again. So, and, you know, in my experience, the reason I say this is because I've seen in adults who don't have very unstable joints, uh, shoulder joints, and you, when you ask them about their childhood, and they'll say, "Yeah, I wasn't. I was one of those nerds who never really took part in athletics." And then you have this, then you have this other group of people who are all gung ho about cheerleading and um, and dance and athletics, and their shoulders are now gone. So that's the problem. Well, and it's it's interesting that you say that because those sports or arts are inherently um, attractive to people with a large range of motion in their shoulders because they can reach the those full, completely, you know, crazy, incredible lines and they can do those crazy, amazing things. And when your child is 10 and they're like, yeah, it clicks all the time, but it doesn't hurt. <laughs> you know, right? it's hard to say, well, stop doing that because it'll hurt when you're 20. <laughs> Well, especially if they don't even say that it clicks. I right, mean, right? Like, I, yeah, they may sure think everybody them. clicks. <laughs> or, well, or they have, if they have no problems whatsoever. I mean, mm -hmm. this is a, a really important thing because because I, I know I get asked this all the time. Should my child dance, do gymnastics? How do, how do I know? And if they have no problems whatsoever, but they do have either, you know, localized or peripheral or generalized joint hypermobility, it, it is a it is a tricky conversation, especially if they're passionate about what they're doing and it's helping their mental health and helping them stay strong. And so, um, you know, it, I think it can be hard to make those choices, don't you think, sometimes that knowing what the future might hold for one person as compared to another person? So um, I've, you know, obviously I've had very dirty looks um, from kids when I tell them that, uh, listen, you can't do cheerleading or you can't do dance anymore because this is, it's not dance as much as things like cheerleading or uh, rollerblading or rollers, you know, whatever, roller skating and things like that. And I do get dirty looks on that. So I've come to a, I figured it out, figured out a way. So I tell them that, you know, swimming, uh, so you give them an alternative exercise or an alternative um, uh, athletic activity. And I'll say that swimming is a good choice for you. And you can look at swimming um, and other things, other activities where you're not or You can do, you can do your athletic. I mean, you can do your um, dance moves. You can do all of these, but not on a competitive level. And the parents need to talk to their teachers about keeping it low key and not pushing them. And preferably uh, the, the best option is of course, not to do it at all. And if they have to do it, then they need to keep that low key um, or else redirect them to some other athletic activities, which are not going to be as harmful, uh, like swimming and um, even even running. And running is a good one that like track is another good one they can do, uh, but track only when they're children, not when they grow up. Once they grow up, track is a very bad idea. So they can mm -hmm. you can redirect their um, their attention to something else. Well, but like even swimming, all of my um, clients who swim or swam at some time, they they specialize in the butterfly stroke because they have the shoulders that they can just pop out of the socket and give them this fantastic range of motion. So I think wherever they end up and however healthy they're trying to be, I think a huge part of that is the intentionality of finding someone that can train them 
in that end range of motion, if they're a, a baseball pitcher or if they're a gymnast or if they're a swimmer, whatever it is saying, okay, this is the range of motion you're working in. We have to make sure you're as stable as possible and not just, you know, don't just cross your fingers when you're 10 and hope it's all going to be great, but find people who understand hypermobility, even if you're not in one of those higher risk, more extreme um, sports that can really understand and train you to, to work right. safely with your, with your wonky body. Did he say monkey body or wonky body? <laughs> wonky. Wonky. <laughs> wonky. Well, body. Mo- monkey sometimes would be, would be somewhat appropriate also. I, I think it's also, to me, it's kind of like um, thinking about football players and head injury. And mm-hmm. I, I try to give them the information and say, you know, think about your family history. What, what do your parents look like in terms of, you know, are they having problems with chronic pain or, or not, or, you know, you do you have difficulty building muscle mass to protect your joints or not, you know, kind of, where are you on that spectrum? Cause like yesterday I gave a talk at the Colorado ballet Academy and all the kids wanted to have their knee hyperextension measured. And a lot of them, of course, have hyperextended knees, but not all of them by any means have EDS, right? So they're, so it's, you know, but, and we, and we don't know, we don't know at the, at these ages, we won't know until a lot later, whether or not they start to develop more symptoms and problems. And so I think it's, I think those conversations, I would rather that they make that decision for the, themselves, I guess, is what I'm thinking. Right. And, you know, the, the thing is a lot of times parents don't realize that they're, that these, their children have hypermobility, they, or they don't take it seriously because they have never heard of EDS or aren't aware of, of that. And that's, and I've always said that in schools, you, you always have this mandatory scoliosis test, right? Which is not really a very helpful thing to do anyway. Why can't we do the Biden score, which takes nine seconds to do and look at it. And if the nine, if the Biden score is, you know, super high, like nine or a nine, all right, go down to see the guy who does uh, EDS and tell us whether it's, you know, what's the next step. Now, and so to bring to your point about uh, hypermobility, so you've got a crowd, you, you know, you spoke at the Colorado Ballet Association, and now you have a crowd of 200 people. And who's, who is, who's got EDS and who's not got EDS? They all look like they have EDS, but you, know, you don't want to brand them as EDS because they're just, just because they're hypermobile. So in my mind, I have a little, I have a little hack. A hack. So, Hey, hack, hack number one for our podcast this time is I asked them if they have other symptoms un- unrelated. Like, do they do you get lightheaded uh, when you get up from bed, or do you get palpitations? And if they say yes, then it sort of triggers me to go more into the EDS part of it. If they say no, I don't have any of that, and they they don't seem their Biden score doesn't seem to be you know terrible, then I'll just say keep an eye, you know. Things may get better, things may get worse, but if they get worse, you really need to follow up on that. So I just stick in that little POTS thing into that into that picture. Uh, because if they have POTS, that means they're, they're, they really, they probably do have EDS and are probably getting to, I mean, it's not very scientific, this, this connection, but it's, it gives me, it gives the parents some sort of a parameter as to know where to, where to stop and look for a specialist. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I and I do want to point out just so we don't get people panicking, if you have had a really hard day of class and rehearsals and haven't drank enough, you're going to get dizzy when you stand up. We're talking about if this happens on a on a you know more frequent 
basis, not, not has it happened once in a while, or, you know, maybe you had the flu or a cold or something and, and that happens. So yeah, no, I think that's a, that's an excellent way to look at it. And, and I, and I do a similar thing and, you know, do they have gastrointestinal problems, for example? And, you know, it's not uncommon that they'll say, yes, I have certain ones will say, yes, I have, you know, pain after eating or whatever. So yeah, I think that's a good approach. Right. So getting back to the shoulder joint, uh, the shoulder joint, as I said, is a very inherently a very unstable joint, whether you have EDS or you don't have EDS. But obviously, when you have EDS, the first thing you've got to remember, as a especially for parents, is to make sure your your children do not hyperextend their shoulder joints. Think of your think of the ligaments around any joint in your body as a as an elastic band. An elastic band, if you stretch it a little bit, it's fine; it'll go back. But if you stretch it too much, it's not going to go back. And then the shoulder becomes unstable. And here's the problem when the shoulder joint becomes unstable, because the shoulder, the ligaments around the shoulder joint don't just support the shoulder itself. They support the whole arm. So the arm starts to hang off. And because the weight of the arm then drags on the shoulder joint. And when that happens, then they, they have a constant pain down their arm. It's always hurting and it's, and of course the shoulder is super loose. And for any of our listeners who are thinking like, oh, I can just go to the orthopedic surgeon and they can tighten it up. Bad, very bad idea. It has been shown again and again uh, on, in studies that any joint, any surgery you on a joint uh, makes the joint inherently weaker again, worse and worse. I've had patients who've had six joint surgeries. I had a patient last week who had 17 right knee surgeries. 17. I mean, at some point, the surgeon should have said, wait a minute, uh, you know, we're not getting anywhere. <laughs> you know, we should, um, I paid my mortgage 20 times over on your surgery. <laughs> I think we should stop. Um, but this is what I'm trying to say is that what happens is, when, when you when they do surgery, they cut tissue, and when they cut the tissue and then they sew it up again, and uh, in the in the with the idea that this tissue is then going to heal by itself and it'll it'll keep the joint tight, which does happen under under non EDS conditions. But in EDS, once you cut that tissue, um, no matter what, it's going to restretch again, and this time it's become weaker than before, and so the stretching um, is going to be even greater which makes the, the joints, not just shoulder joints, but the joints unstable. Um, and there's really no good surgery to fix that. There's no good mechanism also. There are no good um, braces to fix that. There are, um, well, there is one brace, which I have kind of, I like, and we'll talk about that. Uh, we did talk about it the last time, the body, the body braid, but we'll get into that later on. But what I'm trying to caution people is um, with, your, with your shoulder joint, stay under your range of motion. So you don't have to go all the way. So I can bring my um, I can bring my arm all the way up next to my ears, you know, straight up. Uh, I don't need to do that. There's no reason unless you're trying to reach something on the top shelf. There's no reason to do that. So most of the time, stay at 90 degrees. So 90 your arm, let's say the right arm should be at 90 degrees to your body or your your armpit should be at 90 degrees so that your hand can reach your face. That's all you need. We don't need our hands going higher than our head because it's not really helpful, not very valuable. 
under only under special circumstances if you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger yes then you can you, you can go up the tree that's fine but otherwise there's no need to do that so your hand your arm should be at um <clears throat> i don't know if i'm explaining this correctly or not but the arm should not exceed 90 degrees um, at your armpit do, do you mean 90 degrees of flexion or do you mean 90 degrees of abduction or what what it's abduction. Yes, that's a good point. I forgot to bring abduction. That means moving your arm to the side. Mm -hmm. So you bring your arm, raise your arm to the side up to 90 degrees. And so that that's enough to bring your hand to cover your face. So that's protect your face, you know, take care of your face, eat, be able to, let's say, you, you know, <clears throat> bring it up to your face. That's all we need to do. Our, the range of motion we need on our shoulder. And that is way under the full range of motion so it doesn't it doesn't damage the shoulder uh, capsule or the ligaments that's the idea <clears throat> so that's how you can protect it and now most adults people with eds adult edsers do have loose shoulder joints and you know some more than others but this rule applies to everyone is to keep not to bring the shoulder joint and that not to bring the shoulder joint keep it under its range of motion so keep it at 90 degrees uh, away from your what's called abduction or away from your body is 90 degrees and it should be enough to cover your hand should be able to cover your face so you can brush your teeth feed yourself take care of your protect your face <clears throat> and this rule of staying under your range of motion applies to every single joint in the body so you don't want to over stretch your your elbow joint you don't want to stretch your knee joint this is important because the analogy is if you overstretch an elastic band it'll never go back. It'll just stay as a loose thread. And that's the whole idea. One of the things I talk about with my clients, um, and this may not be 100% accurate, but I talk about how if other people's joints are rubber bands, ours are closer to thinking putty or silly putty that stretches but doesn't necessarily come back to its original form the, the way that, um, that, that rubber bands do. So I encourage them to think about if, are we going to sit in, you know, a hyper split or throw your shoulders into some comfortable, but crazy position and just allow that the joints and the connective tissue to stretch and then end up where they are, or do we want to keep it smaller so that we'll, we'll have that resilience still in there. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, on that point, uh, it's not related to the excessive range of motion, but oftentimes people with EDS will crack their joints. Okay, now cracking, let's differentiate between cracking and popping joints. Cracking is when you, you know, how you crack your knuckles, uh, sort of sort of release the pressure on your joints. That's called cracking. And popping is subluxing or dislocating your joint. Now, cracking joints is common in EDS, um, and it's okay to do that. I have had parents who freak out because their kids are constantly cracking their knuckles or their spine. And it's okay to do that as long as they are doing it. And the theory behind that is that between every joint, there is a gap. And the, in that gap is a fluid that lives in a pocket. That's the joint fluid. And um, there are different theories, but generally the fluid, the volume of the fluid increases in these joints. Now, if your joint is loose, that means you can hold much more fluid. And so once it holds a lot more fluid, the pressure on that joint, the inside pressure on the joint is excessive. So what they do is they crack their joints more often to release the pressure. And that's fine. And most times 
they'll tell you that they feel better they have less pain when they crack their joints uh, we do that too we often um, we, we meaning non-edsers do that too we crack our necks a few times or we crack our shoulders stretch our shoulders and we crack it and uh, it's it's fine as long as you're doing it and not anybody else I'm curious if, if someone is do because a lot of those things are become habitual, right? The the cracking of the joints. And I definitely have joints that crack and ones that pop and had shoulders that popped and subluxed a lot before I knew what that was and 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 let it happen or did it a lot more than I I wish that I hadn't done all that. But do you think though, if you're doing that cracking, that that over time causes those ligaments to stretch out, or you don't, or you don't think that happens? No, they don't because they're not really or stretching their ligaments. What they're doing is they are just trying to move the joint in a certain way that the pressure inside the joint is released. There are several theories as to why the pressure inside the mm. joint increases. There's one theory that there's collection of carbon dioxide. There's another theory that says fluid simply collects in there. We no one knows why, but we know that the volume increases. And when they when you're cracking a joint, you're not overstretching the joint. And that's also called cavitation, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. What you're referring to right now? Okay. Thanks. In case people have heard that word. So that brings to our second hack. <laughs> um, you can't you can't choose burglary as being a burglar as your profession. <laughs> you can or cannot. Because you're going to be cracking your joints. You're you're going to be cracking your joints all the way. It's not going to help. <laughs> people so with no ED cat burglary. <laughs> people with EDS don't make good burglars, is what you're saying. They don't. They well, they can. I mean, they can sneak through those small spaces. But unfortunately, it's the cracking that gives them away. <laughs> okay, so I feel like I feel like that's a zero sum balance then, because on the one hand, I can't sneak up on anyone, as my children say, because my ankles are snapping and popping the whole way. But on the other hand, once I'm in handcuffs, I can <laughs> subluxate my thumb and get out of them. So you know, I mean, evens Jennifer, itself out, right? <laughs> Jennifer, let me just clarify one thing. Tell me about this incident when you were handcuffed and allegedly, why were you handcuffed? Allegedly. <laughs> No, you know, spe speaking of that, though, with the thumbs, the reason I know that is because um, I have never unhooked a bracelet to put a bracelet on my wrist. I always, they, I, I've been oh. hooked and I just slide them over my hands and I can just tuck my thumb in to slide it on. I didn't know everybody couldn't do that until I was, you know, an older teenager and somebody was like, what are you doing? And I was like, just tucking my thumb in so I can put my <laughs> bracelet on. <laughs> That's funny. So, so we just went off topic. Uh, so the shoulder joint again uh, stay so we're talking about protecting your shoulder joint there are really no great braces for shoulder joints uh, except the body braid and we talked about the body braid at one of our last podcasts and again uh, the body braid is a it looks like a bunch of tape put together um, but it's an it's a phenomenal uh, piece of um, clothing I think or or a brace that you know, it, it was invented by a physician from Toronto and you can get to the website and you can see how it works. And it's it, one of the things that really does well for this is to stabilize the shoulder joint. And there are two ways you can wear the body braid to stabilize the shoulder joint. Now, stabilizing means that keeping it from coming out, subluxing, but at the same time being able to use it. That's the idea. You don't want to you know, freeze a joint and you can't use it, then there's really no point. So the body braid does that very well. Um, uh, the the next point, the next point, now if let's say if um, 
The next thing I wanted to bring up was the back pain, the upper back pain uh, that happens in people with this. It can happen from your shoulder joint also. Now, one of the things about joints is when the joint subluxes, which is, means that when the joint slips out of its socket, then the muscles around the joint tend to tighten up in order to, it's a reflex thing. So it tightens up, the, the muscles tighten up, trying to put the joint, stabilize the joint. And so that's when you feel, patients will feel like something doesn't seem to be in the right place and it hurts a lot. <clears throat> and, you know, once you put the joint back in place, the, the pain, the, everything feels right, the pain goes away. But the point I'm trying to make is that the pain that comes from a joint dislocation or a joint subluxation is not from the joint itself. It's from the muscles that are around the joint. So for example, the group of muscles that control the shoulder joint is, is called the rotator cuff group. The rotator cuff group controls and manages the shoulder joint. And oftentimes when these patients are subluxing their shoulder joint 10 times a day, it feels like their muscles are, the, the most of their pain is from the muscles and not as much from the joint itself. And this is the problem. Uh, they, they show up at their, their provider's office and it looks like, oh, you've got muscle pain. Let me do something for the muscle pain and you know, make help relax that muscle. So it could be either um, doing uh, dry needling, trigger points, uh, massage, or medicines to loosen up the muscles. But you do not want to loosen up the muscles. You want to keep your shoulder joint in place. They help keep your shoulder joint in place. Once you loosen up those muscles, your shoulder is going to sublux even more. And this principle applies to all joints. So the, the concept that oh, you know, your muscles are very tight and they hurt, we should try and loosen them up with, you know, whatever device or whatever means is, is not a good idea because when you do that, then you're making the joint even more, you're, you're taking away the one thing that keeps your joint stable. And that's, that's the thing to be careful about. Obviously, there is a cutoff point when the muscle pain is so severe that it's difficult to, you know, uh, be comfortable, then of course you can do something about it, but to a limit, do not get very aggressive about loosening the muscles because once you loosen the muscles too much, then your joint is going to sublux even more. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, it's a great point to make. And that's something that I have to, to deal with a lot with my clients is when they have so much tightness, they're like, I just want to release this. It just feels so tight. It just feels so tight. And for me, that's a signal to say, Hey, what's not working? What is super loose? If the front of their hips feels super tight, what's not working in the back of the legs? If their pecs in their chest feel really, really tight, what? why are the right. pecs working so much? What is not working? And what compensatory strategies have happened because of that? And we can't, and I, I tell them, I can't loosen this up. It's like taking too many rocks out of a rock wall and then the rock wall is gonna collapse if we don't put something else in there to help hold that structure up. So we take a little out, we do a little strengthening of something else and we kind of gradually replace the rocks in the rock wall, but we can't just take them all out at once. Um, so that's a really great point. Right, right. And I have a, so and you, I have a oh, I'm sorry, can I ask a couple of follow-ups before we move on? Sure. So the first thing is, could you comment about the, the uh, concept that a tight muscle is a weak muscle? And then also a lot of my patients that that come to me that have been seeing other, um, other clinicians, it's very, very common that they are taking daily muscle relaxants. They have been prescribed not for, not for acute, like, like you're talking about, you know, take this when you've acutely subluxed something, but they're taking every single day, they're taking muscle relaxants. Would you comment on those two things? 
Okay, so <clears throat> on the first point, um, patients with EDS have inherently weak muscles because their connective tissue is weak. We know that. And mm -hmm. the risk about having weak connective tissue means that your connective tissue is going to break down easily and takes much longer to heal, which is why when we, I think at some point we talked about exercise and I said, you've got to limit your exercise, your pace it so that you're not causing enough, uh, too, much, too much of a damage to your wear and tear to your muscles. Now, when a muscle becomes tight in an EDS patient, and just as Jennifer mentioned, you have to look at why is your muscle so tight? What is it? There's a, there's a reason why your muscle is getting so tight. There's a reason your muscle is misbehaving. You, you don't treat, you don't just go for the muscle. You look at the joint that muscle is supporting. And is that joint loose? Is it subluxing? Is it, you know, uh, not aligned and therefore your muscles are tight? So then you work on the joint and you stabilize the joint by whatever means and the muscle will let go automatically um, rather than you know sticking needles or doing all sorts of massage therapy and deep tissue massage and all, all sorts of things. You don't want to do that. That's going to damage the tissue much more. But there's one caveat to this, the caveat being that, that of course, if it's excruciating pain and, you know, for just for the time being, you can do something about it. Let's say you can put some magnesium lotion over it um, or even a gentle myofascial release to help sort of loosen up the muscle for the time being, then that's fine. It's better than going to the emergency room. Uh, but in general, look for the cause of the muscle tightness, which is usually a misaligned subluxing muscle uh, joint. Now on the point on muscle relaxants, so muscle relaxants is a misnomer. There are no muscle relaxants. The only muscle relaxants we have are what you use in the operating room, Linda. Yeah. Okay, trust me, you don't want to use them. <laughs> Those yeah, are we're not paralyzing agents. or succinylcholine yeah. or anything like that. You don't yeah. want to use the. Okay, you don't. Those are paralyzing agents. So those are the true muscle right. relaxants. But drugs like tizanidine or Flexeril or Soma and all. These are not muscle relaxants. These are muscle. These are drugs that lower the tone of your muscles. So if you have a muscle spasm somewhere, let's say you have a muscle spasm in your calf and you take some Flexeril, it's not going to fix that muscle spasm. But what it's going to do is put you to sleep and then the muscle will let go. But it doesn't do anything to release that spasm. There is one exception to the drugs. It's not classified as a muscle relaxant. And this is one of my favorite drugs for for muscle cramps and muscle spasms, and it's called uh, it's so it is called carbidopa. It is marketed under the name of Cinemet. It's a combination of carbidopa and levodopa. This was something that I discovered um, years ago when I, I was just reading some literature, and I came across that patients with chronic muscle pain have low dopamine levels in their brain. And so I said, wait, if you have low dopamine levels in chronic muscle pain, I know a drug that can increase that dopamine level. So why not try Cinemet? And we did try it and we got really good results with it. So that's a drug you can take. Um, half a pill, a full pill, doesn't matter. It, it, does, it does help with muscle cramps and pains. <clears throat> but in, in reality, there is no true muscle relaxant that, that can be used. Um, but there's another option is to use uh, a magnesium lotion. Magnesium lotion applied topically does make a huge difference. Now, we're, we are, when I say we, I mean EDS and non-EDSers, 
we are chronically magnesium deficient. And I don't know why. I mean, growing up in med school, magnesium was never a subject. No one talked about magnesium. And, you know, and honestly, you cannot even check magnesium levels. There is a, if you go to the lab, they do a blood test and that tells you magnesium levels, but magnesium tends to hide in bones and muscles. So a blood magnesium level is not going to tell you the true magnesium levels, but we all have low magnesium levels. It could be in the fruits and vegetables. They come from green leafy vegetables. Um, it could be that you're not taking enough green leafy vegetables. It could be that the green leafy, leafy vegetables that are grown are not grown. You know, they're grown hydroponically and they're probably not getting enough magnesium. I don't know. This is just a guesswork. But when you increase your magnesium, um, now magnesium orally does not work as well as topical magnesium. So magnesium lotion works really, really well. You can take some magnesium lotion. It's freely available on, on online and everywhere. And you apply it, um, rub it over the muscles cramp area, and you should start to see some relief within a few, uh, within a few minutes. Um, <clears throat> there is one particular brand um, that has caprylic acid in it also, which is grapeseed uh, oil, which helps with pain. So it's magnesium with caprylic acid, and the only company that makes it is um, Ancient Minerals. Ancient Minerals. That's it. It's called Ancient Minerals. They have a few different models. Um, I just realized that, but there's one that is just lotion. You can get that. Don't get the oil. The oil is kind of irritating. Get the lotion and just apply it and it makes a huge difference. And this goes for both EDS and non-EDS patients. Oftentimes people get home after a long day at work, their muscles are achy. They want to you know, put their feet up and just let go and relax. That's the time to put some of this. Oral magnesium does not get absorbed well. And if you take too much of it, trying to hope, hoping to get some of it absorbed, you end up with diarrhea. So it's not worth it. Um, the other magnesium form that you can use is called Epsom salt. Epsom salt has um, tons of magnesium in it. Did you know where Eps the word Epsom salt came from? Mm -mm. No, and I wondered that. Aha. It came from <laughs> a, a little town in UK called Epsom. Huh. Mm. That's where it was produced first, or I can, I guess, discovered first. I've always thought that it was an acronym or something. And, and then I sort of discovered it's from a town in, in, in UK where it came from. So in any way, um, I digress. Um, so this has magnesium in it, two large cups of magnesium in a, in a warm bathtub and you soak yourself in it and you're good to go. Um, don't wash it. So don't take a, don't take a shower after you've come out. Let, just let it dry on you. Um, <clears throat> So that's uh, so that's magnesium uh, for muscle cramps and muscle spasms. Well, that's a good hack too. Um, I think a lot of us already do um, Epsom salts. I think especially in the athletic community, but it's a great tip to not wash off afterwards and to just kind of leave it there. There's one small warning on that part. Okay, if you have a dog, keep him away from you because he's going to lick at your legs because he's getting a lot of magnesium that they want. Mm. So he's going to lick, your, lick all your Epsom salt off your legs. <laughs> <laughs> Keep him off. But anyway, you can also, if you don't have a bathtub, you can put a few drops of water in the salt and make a little paste-like thing and rub it over your legs, and that'll work just as fine. So, so coming to the shoulder joint, um, the shoulder joint 
uh, remember I told you there's a big joint called the glenohumeral joint. That's where the big ball and socket joint is. And then you have the tiny joint where the collarbone meets the shoulder joint, which is called the AC joint or the chromioclavicular joint. Um, for, for purposes of our sanity, we'll keep just call it AC joint. And so this AC joint is a tiny joint that lives uh, sort of near the shoulder joint and it does get arthritic and it does get painful. Um, and like every joint, it becomes loose. So you've got to remember that in EDS, joints not only sublux or dislocate, but they also become loose. That means they don't sublux, but they are rattling around. And that's what happens to the AC joint. The, the collarbone, so it, on, the, on, the, on its outside, it connects to the shoulder joint, but on the inside, it connects to the breastbone. And it forms a joint there called the menobrio-sternal joint. Uh, you don't have to, it's, it's very uncommon, but I've seen a few cases of where the menobrio-sternal joint is loose and it's kind of painful. But the pro problem with the collarbone is, um, and this is where I want to talk to you about a condition called thoracic outlet syndrome. Now, thoracic outlet syndrome, let's talk about the symptoms. It, the symptoms are exactly upper back pain and pain going down the arm to specific fingers. Um, it could be the thumb, uh, the th thumb, the pointer, uh, and the middle finger, or it could be the ring finger and the pinky finger. Um, so it's exactly looks like it's coming as a, like a disc herniation from your neck going down your arm. So this pain uh, originates in the shoulder and upper back and goes down the arm. And the way, the reason it does that in thoracic outlet syndrome is that the first rib is a very flat rib. It sits very flat on, on our, like on, like just below the collarbone and, and the collarbone crosses over the first rib. And there is a gap between the collarbone and the first rib. There's a very small gap. And in this gap live the nerves that go, that come down from your neck. They, they slide over the first rib and under the collarbone and go down your arm. And then, this is called the brachial plexus. So these nerves go over the first rib, under the collarbone, down to your arm. And then along with that, you have the vein, the vein also, the brachial, brachiocephalic vein that goes down your arm. And then you have the brachial artery that also goes down your arm. And then you have a few muscles in there. So there are a bunch of structures that live in this small gap between your first rib and the collarbone. Now, it sounds like you're saying, and I, sorry to interrupt you, and I just want to make sure I understand. It sounds like you're saying that thoracic outlet syndrome can sort of mimic or imitate uh, like disc issues. And so you're saying this might be another possibility that people should look at. Is that correct? Absolutely. That's okay. exactly. I'm sorry. I should have completed that sentence. That is what I was trying to uh, warn people. Like, okay. and often I've seen many times where people have had neck surgery just based on that. Uh, you know, if you take an MRI of anybody's neck, there's going to be something there. There is no such thing as a normal MRI. And then you know they look at it and they say, "Oh yeah, you've got a disc over there. Let's operate." But it's really just thoracic outlet syndrome, and it's common in EDS. It's common in athletes, and it's common in um, EDS patients. Uh, so if you're an athlete with EDS, you're in you're in big trouble. Now this gap is so small; it's between the rib, the first rib, and the collarbone. Um, and it and it remember I remember um, when I said that on the other end, on the outer end of the collarbone, it connects to your shoulder joint. Now, should your shoulder joint become unstable, then that makes your collarbone unstable. And when that collarbone bone becomes unstable it shortens the gap between the rib, the first rib and the collarbone. 
And so the collarbone then presses on the first rib. And in, the, in, in that process, it, it squeezes the nerve, the brachial plexus, the nerve that go down your arm. And that's why they have an arm pain. Well, that makes Did that sense. also happen from the first rib being elevated from increased tension in the, in the musculature, the scalenes or the sternocleidomastoid? Can that contribute as well? Yes. So th th there are other reasons for having thoracic outlet syndrome. Um, like you said, the, the, remember I just said there are muscles connected to the first rib. So when these muscles tighten up, they pull up the first rib and then that again shortens the gap. Um, in some cases, there is an extra rib there and that extra rib also causes problems. But these are exceptional cases. The more common causes of EDS, um, thoracic outlet and EDS is, is this, is where your, your shoulder joint is loose, everybody's shoulder joint is loose and that creates a, the gap, gap between the first rib and the collarbone becomes lesser which then presses on the nerve going down the arm. And that's called thoracic outlet syndrome. And there are three types. There is the neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome when the nerve is being pressed. When, when the pressure becomes even more or the gap becomes even lesser, then it also presses on the vein, in which case it's called venous thoracic outlet syndrome. And then the other one, which is extremely rare is when it presses on the artery. When it presses the artery, it's called arterial thoracic outlet syndrome. This, the, the second, the vein, venous thoracic and the arterial thoracic outlet syndrome are not common. 95% uh, of cases are neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. Venous and arterial th um, thoracic outlet syndromes are a bit of an emergency because you can get um, a, a venous thrombus, thrombus there and all that stuff. But I think in my lifetime, I may have seen about 20 cases of that but a lot of them are just neurogenic thoracic outlet where there's this nerve pain going down the arm. And it's, it's not that hard to diagnose it. it there, are, there are like three or four clinical tests that the doctor can do um, in the office and it'll tell them that it's thoracic outlet syndrome. Um, the other test, there are other radiological tests that they can do where they can do an, um, an, an MRI and all that stuff. But here's the thing they oftentimes they do an MRI in the normal position. So your arms are by your side and that's your most relaxed position. That's your position where you have the least amount of pain. You want your arm sticking out away from you where your arm is actually hurting, where the space has shortened out, your arm is hurting and that's when you need a picture and that you can do only in a CAT scan. And so you need a CAT scan to do that. Um, <clears throat> The treatment for thoracic outlet syndrome is relatively simple. Um, you can, well, what I do, let me just tell you what I do. Um, I'll do a couple of trigger point injections. So I'm sorry, let me just back up a little bit. When the nerve from your arm travels, from your neck travels over the first rib and under the collarbone, and as it's on its way down to your arm, it travels behind a muscle called the pec minor muscle or the pectoralis minor muscle. That's that big chesty muscle that people have. And it goes behind that and then it goes down the arm. And now, and, and again, one of the exams that um, I'll do in my office is push on the pectoralis minor muscle and they'll like, they'll tell you that the pain is going down their arm. Uh, normally it should not. If you press on the pec minor muscle, the pain should not go down the arm. But, but if it does, it points more towards a neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. So. If I see a patient with thoracic outlet syndrome in my office, I, I'll try and do some injections into the muscle 
into the pec minor muscle, into the scalene muscles. Those are the muscles that uh, Dr. Bluestein just mentioned was that are connected to the first rib and can pull your rib up. So you do that. Those are neck muscles. And, and then I see what the response is. And if the patient has some sort of a positive response, like they'll come back and say, hey, doc, it helped for a few weeks and now the pain is back. So now you know you're on the right track. Um, and then the, the next thing is to Botox these muscles. So when you loosen up these muscles, then the gap between the first rib and the collarbone increases. And so you give some Botox injections with the pec minor muscle into the scalene muscles. Approximately, uh, and this is not my figure, this is the, this is the data that's been shown that 70% of patients will respond to Botox injections. So the question is how many insurances will approve Botox injections for, um, for a thoracic outlet syndrome? Well, it sounds 0%. like it should be a lot. Zero <laughs> percent. Oh my gosh. So 0% of insurances will approve Botox for thoracic outlet syndrome, but those who do get Botox, 70% of them will respond to it. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Obviously, if you've done all this and they're not responding, then it's time to investigate even further. Do they have an extra rib over there? And all of those things. And then it becomes a messy affair. If you have an extra rib or you're not getting any better, then it involves doing surgery. And as we all know, that surgery is not a good idea. But this surgery is fine because it's more of a soft tissue surgery. Now, in the surgery, um, some of the things that they do is they release the pec minor muscle. So they sort of cut it partially and loosen it up. And then they re release the scaling muscle. Um, they'll even remove the first rib to increase the gap over there. And, and the results are pretty good. Even though it's the surgery is, it, it is uh, this surgery, but the results are good. I haven't seen, well, I haven't seen too many patients with severe thoracic outlet syndrome that I need to send them to a surgeon for surgery. The one exception is that if the patient has started to develop complex regional pain syndrome, to their arm because of thoracic outlet syndrome. I think, I don't think um, we have, we'll talk about CRPS and EDS at some point, okay? Um, but for those who don't know what CRPS or complex regional pain syndrome is, it's a brutal condition. It's a brutal, painful condition. Actually, it's rated as the worst pain uh, a, a person can feel. So, <clears throat> That would be the only exception when I would say, all right, the Botox isn't working. I've tried it twice. Time to go and see the surgeon and release that because their arm is pretty useless now because of the severity of the pain. Those are the exceptions. And we've had some of those exceptions. We've seen that. This is a common, in the non-EDS population, this is a common athletic injury, especially in soccer. Um, they get whacked hard. They land on their hand. And when they land on their hand, uh, they 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 damage their, they cause thoracic outlet syndrome. So this is something to watch out for. Um, the the take-home point I was trying to make here is just because you have pain in your upper back and neck and it's going down your arm doesn't mean that it's coming from your neck. Have it checked by somebody who understands thoracic outlet syndrome. Um, a lot of the vascular surgeons know thoracic outlet syndrome. Thoracic surgeons know vascular thoracic outlet syndrome. Uh, some of the physical therapists know this. Uh, but not everybody knows how to diagnose it. So all of these kind of people would be the people to go to for getting a diagnosis or at least a suspicion. <clears throat> and I think that pretty much covers the shoulder uh, itself. Um, moving down to the elbow, 
the elbow joint is is a pretty stable joint it doesn't really sublux a lot or dislocate a lot the even if it subluxes it's not a problem but what happens is um, if your elbow joint hyperextends so it hyperextends means that if you look at it from the side it looks like a broken stick <clears throat> that um, what, what happens is now this is where we talked remember i talked to you about misaligned joints sublux joints and dislocated joints so this is where the joint is not subluxed but misaligned and because it's misaligned it causes more of tendonitis so they'll have pain on the inside of the elbow joint or on the outside of the elbow joint commonly known as golfer's elbow or tennis elbow but it is more from tendonitis because the joint is kind of unstable the, there is one joint over there that does sublux but it usually doesn't cause any problems um, moving down to the to the wrist and hands and fingers uh, this is a common issue in eds they do have pain there and especially when they use it um, so before i get into that i just want to discuss a phenomenon that happens in the human body called proprioception or otherwise known as joint position sense there are sensors in our joints ligaments muscles uh, skin that inform my brain exactly where the joints are and based on that the brain then decides how to balance yourself so let's say for example you're walking first you put all your weight on the right leg so your brain knows that your right leg is on the floor and your left leg is say three inches above uh, or your left ankle is three inches above and so it sends a message to the right leg how to balance you uh, a common a common example i can tell you uh, of, of understanding proprioception is uh, if you have an itch on your head you you can scratch that itch without even looking without even looking you can pinpoint where exactly the itch is and you can scratch it and the, the reason is that your brain knows exactly where the itch on your scalp is and it sends a message to your arm and your knuckles and it it sort of redirects your hand right over to the itch that's an example of proprioception and we use that a lot on a daily basis. It protects our joints. It helps us move smoothly. <clears throat> and, and this is, this is uh, so it's critical to have good proprioception. People with EDS don't often realize, unless, until and unless they're diagnosed with EDS, they don't realize that they have poor proprioception. When you have, they, they do have poor, poor proprioception because their joints are loose. And because their joints are loose, their joints are not sending signals to the brain in time. And when they don't send it in time, then the brain cannot react fast enough. And I'll give you an example. When you're walking up the stairs, oftentimes people with EDS trip when walking up the stairs. And, and what happens is every step is supposed to be six inches. That's by law. All steps have to be six inches. And now as you lift your, say you're walking up, you're, you're standing, your weight is on your right leg. You lift your left leg as you want to get six inches higher you want to bring your foot six inches higher to the next step but your brain doesn't know where you are where your foot is and you might just it might just assume that your foot at three inches is at six inches and you trip and fall i don't think i explained that well so as you're walking up the steps um, you have to your ankle has to move up by six inches the brain you may have moved your ankle only four inches and the brain assumes that you've moved it at six inches and makes you take a step and that's when you trip and fall so that's an example of poor proprioception and that's not just limited to ads poor, poor, poor proprioception is seen in the elderly because their joints have been damaged 
Um, it's seen after um, joint replacement surgery. Um, it's seen in athletes. Uh, they, they have, their joints have been damaged. And it's seen in toddlers where they have not yet developed their joint position since. Well, but poor proprioception is, is something that um, has been linked definitively to hypermobility. Um, and, and it is something that we have talked about on several, on several discussions and it, and it bears reintroducing and reminding people of if your body doesn't have that awareness of where it is in space, then when we're talking about a joint that has a greater range of motion than usual, it may not be sure where is the most optimal place for that joint to sit in the arm. There was a study that was released oh gosh, 10, 12 years ago, um, that was asking people with hypermobility to take their arms straight out to their sides to AB duct and to move them from front to side and, and then do it with their eyes closed and stop when their arms were straight out to the side. And the people with hypermobility had a much larger margin of error. I think it was like 23% of accurately figuring out what where straight to the side was than people who didn't have hypermobility. So as you pointed out with the stairs, it is an issue for every day. It's not just, can I balance better for my Olympic event or for my dancing on a world stage? It, it's something that applies to everyday life as well. Yes, and 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 I wanted to, so just to cover up the stairs issue. So the way to overcome that is, is to visually look at your feet and the st steps where the stairs are and keep your hand on the railing. Now, on a day-to-day -day basis, when you're, here's the difference between dance and walking. When you're when you're walking, you're you're not you're not focused on your walking. You're focused on, I don't know, something else. Where you're going, or you're thinking about something. You're not thinking about your feet moving. When you're dancing, you're very focused on your feet. You're that's your main focus, and you're and so in dancing, you may not notice as much falling down or bumping into things because you're very focused on where your feet are, where your hands are. But when, when you're walking, you know, you're walking down the street, you may not notice that. And we, this is one of the tests that I do in my office is I have my patients walk and walk up and down the, the corridor. And, um, and then I look at their gait. So I look at their gait for various reasons. But at some point while they're walking, I'll have them, I'll tell them suddenly, now close your eyes and walk. And they, they walk straight into the wall. And the reason is that they have no idea of their spatial sense in space. And they tend to walk into the world. They get a little, it's, it's a little scary. So um, we haven't had any injuries, but still. Um, so proprioception or joint position sense is very critical. In, 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 and we'll, we'll cover this again and again at different steps. But one of the things about the hand is that when you hold, let's say, when you hold a pen or a pencil to write, um, we they tend to, people with, or children with EDS or people with EDS, tend to hold the pencil really, really tight because they're not getting any signals from the from their knuckles. So the brain overcompensates by making them hold their pencil really tight. Um, they may even hold it in a very different way. They might wrap around, wrap like three or four fingers around a pencil um, differently. And the, the other thing that they do is they press down hard when they write. That's called haptic feedback. So when you press hard, you get a feel, you get a sense of where, where you are, the scratchiness of writing with a pencil on paper is called haptic feedback. That's what iPhones have. When you press the button, you get this little buzz. That's called haptic feedback. That means signal received. So they don't get that haptic feedback. And they don't exactly know 
how tight they're holding their pencils. So they overcompensate by holding it really tight. Now, there are two issues with that. One is they're making their muscles, their tiny muscles in their hands work harder than needed. You don't really need a whole lot of energy to hold a pencil, but these kids um, are holding, or even adults, whatever they're holding, they're holding it very tight. So they're using their muscles a lot. That's number one. Number two, their joints they're in their fingers, the finger joints are lax. And in order to hold something, we need to make our fingers rigid. And they have difficulty making it rigid because their fingers are lax. So they hold it even tighter. And, and, and eventually kids or even adults will complain of hand pain after having used it for something like in writing or cooking, for example, when you're chopping food or stirring food or, you know, or in people who are doing work with their hands, like artists and all, they'll find that their hands start to hurt after some time. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly muscle pain. And that and that's a great point. That's one of the um that's one of the things that don't seem to have anything to do with hypermobility that I that I use as a hack when I'm when I'm doing an intake for a new client is how do you hold your pencil? Do you enjoy writing physically? Do you not enjoy writing? And it was a new area for me to learn about. Um, one of my kids went through um, occupational therapy for hands and for grip issues. And I learned that, you know, the way that people hold their pencil and have that finger kind of over, of course, nobody can see this because it's a podcast, but if you're hypermobile, you can really hyperextend those joints, which doesn't feel good. So then you start to change your hand grip and do different things with it to try to make it feel better. Um, and so that's one of those little things. And I read an article on it just a, a few years ago that um, a medical professional was saying, hey, for people with hypermobility, we need to to look at their writing skills and their their fine motor skills with their hands, because a lot of them are are being done a disservice by not looking at that and not checking into it. Because again, we're copers, we're adaptable, right? And we figure out right. how to make it work. If, you're, if your purse pulls your shoulder out of the socket, you figure out a different way to hold it or just sling it up your ear, shoulder up to your ear or something. So we're nothing if not uh, flexible. Wait, <laughs> physically didn't you bring, and your, bring your shoulder to your ear? Well, yes. Like when I was, was carrying a purse in New York and it, it, pulled literally pulled my shoulder out of the socket i would just put my purse on my shoulder and then just hold my shoulder up by my ear to help carry the purse and i was like why doesn't everybody do this you know <laughs> and then you have a whole host of other issues from that so compensatory strategies i feel like we could win olympic medals for our compensatory strategies <laughs> yes that is true so when it comes to holding a small object like a pencil okay uh, firstly, in kids, let's talk about kids first, and then we'll talk about adults. In kids, if they're holding the pencil in a quote-unquote weird way, okay, do not correct it. Okay, there is no normal way of holding a pencil. There's no handbook on holding pencils. As long as the job is being done, let them do it. That's They've discovered that that's the best way to hold it. If they need four fingers to hold a, a pencil, so be it. So don't make their teachers try to corrected to the right way. I'm showing air quotes for those who think. <laughs> the second thing is that they do press hard and they do, of course, um, hold their pencils very tight. And that's the issue that the way to, so that's a proprioception issue. So how do you correct proprioception mm -hmm. in this case? Now, here's the thing in proprioception, what you do is um, first things is to, if they have hypermobility of their fingers, correct that. Okay, and you can, that's an easy thing to do in girls, especially, you get these ring splints uh, that literally look like 
rings and you can put these around your around the joints that are loose now you only need to do that for three fingers the thumb the index finger and the middle finger the other two fingers are really useless the ring finger and the pinky they don't really do anything so <clears throat> for these three fingers just make sure that the loose joints are stabilized with ring splints okay <clears throat> once you've got those st stabilized um, the second thing is to look at the pencil the writing instrument um, you can get a thicker version of that or you can get rubber thingies that go on these on these pencils that make them thicker so that when they're when they're clamping their hand onto the onto the on the pencil they're not clamping onto something really hard which is going to affect their pain their muscles so there are rubber things you can buy at any store and that helps them that is one way to do that um, oftentimes occupational therapies therapists do have something around uh, for that also um, <clears throat> Once they have that, now for the non-writing portion, so let's say you're cooking and you know, you're know you using, you're chopping food or stirring food. Um, in that case, buy knives or ladles or spoons that have a thick, big handle. And there's only one company I know of that does that. And that's called OXO, O-X-O. You can, it's very popular. You can get them at, I've seen them in Target. I've seen them at on Amazon. They make their um, kitchen utensils in a very intelligent way. They are uh, the handles are very big. They are very thick, and they are rough, they're soft. They're not very very hard, and that's another way to work around that. Now, if you're doing something that's let's say it's not cooking and it's none of this. Let's say you're doing um, your your gardening or doing something else. You can wear a fingerless compression glove, and that'll help also. They're often sold as arthritis gloves. And these gloves, what here's the thing: when the when the brain isn't getting any signals from the joints as to their position, then it uses contact of the fabric over the skin on the of the joint as a way of figuring out where the joint is. So when you wear a glove, the glove when it comes in contact with that particular joint on your on your knuckles, that tells the brain exactly where the um, where where the knuckle is, the position of the knuckle. And that helps patients, uh, that helps people understand, or the brain understand where your, where your joints are at any given time. So this would come in handy in others, other things like non-writing thing or non-cooking things, like you're doing some painting or you're doing some yard work and things like that, you can wear them at, at those points. By the way, this, um, this concept of proprioception uh, had not been proven for a very, very long time. We knew that this was a problem, but it was eventually proven in 2021, and the person who did that actually uh, got the Nobel Prize. And the, he was the one. We weren't we weren't able to prove it definitely. We knew that there's proprioception. We knew that, but we couldn't really prove it. Uh, and he was the one to first prove it in 21, as recent as 21. And he uh, he's at um, Scripps in, in in California, and he was he shared the Nobel Prize for Physiology, and this was his work. Anyway, so for the hand, you can either wear a compression, uh, fingerless compression glove, uh, stabilize the joints on your fingers with ring splints. Now, just want to touch base on the ring splints. That's a that's a pretty difficult issue. Um, there is a company that makes them. Uh, Isn't it silver ring splints? I can't the name of the company right now, but Are you silver? Yeah. Yes, silver ring splints. They're kind of difficult to work with. They're they're they have their own measuring method, and they and it's. Um, it's, it's hard to work with them. Let's just get to that, end it there. 
um, there are some people, some really nice uh, creative EDSers um, who make them at home and they'll, they'll create it for you at home. Uh, one of them that I know is, um, again, let me, let me shake my head. Uh, zebra, zebra Sprints. Um, this lady is uh, Zebra Sprints. I believe she's on Etsy and I believe she is on her own website also. Um, the advantage of going to a person like that versus going to a company is that, you know, these things, these ring sprints need constant adjustment as you grow or as your, you know, your hands change shape and all that. And if you have a, if you have a relationship with the person, then they can adjust it again and again and fix it. So anyway, ring sprints stabilize your uh, rings, your fingers. Uh, <clears throat> wearing a, a, a big old uh, brace, um, there are two downsides to it. One is that they don't really do a good job and they get very sweaty and it's hard to wear them. Uh, plus, they look really ugly. I don't really listen, Jennifer. This is you. You, you know, you want you want to look. It, there is an aesthetic value to it, and you cannot tell a teenager to wear an ugly hand brace, but you can convince them to wear a ring splint. You don't even have to convince them. One look at it, and they're all for it. But if you tell them, "I need you to wear this leather thing and strap it up and tie it up." you're not gonna get any results from it. That's, so you gotta look at non-medical compliance factors. Um, anyway, so that's the, that's the one about the hand. Most commonly this issue, the, the bigger problem is with the thumb. The thumb is not exactly a very stable joint in some forms. And oftentimes you'll see thumb issues. Uh, there's also a tendon that goes to the thumb um, and that tendon, so it's, if you look at your hand with the thumb up, uh, it's on the edge of the hand, um, wrist, uh, there's, a there's a tendon that goes to the thumb and it's, it's a condition called uh, decoravians or DQ. Uh, the tendon gets um, inflamed. And in that case, just stabilizing the thumb makes a difference. So these are some of the things that you can use. Uh, these are the issues that you can you have with your arms that I can think of right now. What about, um, I'm just thinking through issues I've had or I've seen other people had, um, what about the radial ulnar joint? Because I've definitely run into people who have that. It can sublux easily, especially the ones who are like, please don't pull on my hands because I can feel it slide in and out. Yes. So you're talking about the distal radial ulnar joint. That's yes, so, the, distal, so, the, yes. so the wrist, um, the wrist is made up of, well, the end of the wrist has got, has made up of two bones, um, the radius and the ulna, and they meet up there at the wrist. And oftentimes, um, those the joint at that point splits open. Um, the only the that's the only place you would need to wear a brace, because, like I said, once it splits, it's not going to heal up on its own. And that's the only place you would want to wear a a, a brace to keep that uh, in place. And it doesn't have to be a big brace. It can be something as much as an elastic brace that just holds it, like a wrist, like one of those wristbands that tennis players wear. Something like that might be enough uh, to hold that radio ulna joint in place, but avoid separating the radio ulna joint. And the way to the way you can do that is, uh, I'll give you an example. When you're brushing your teeth, um, you've got the brush in your hand and you're brushing your teeth, and you rest your left hand on the sink, and you're putting all your weight on that, and that's where the radio ulna joint splits. So that's the best example I can give you right now. This. Um, Surgery does not help because you need some movement at that joint. 
there's a reason why God made a joint over there because you need movement. Uh, however slight, but you need movement there. If you if you put screws and you fuse it, it's not going to help. It's going to make things worse because then that that pressure the pressure is then transmitted to the elbow where where the radio ulnar joint meets up again. Well, I think that's just another great example of how prevention is so important and educating children, you know, or parents. If your child already seems loose and hypermobile, don't grab them by the hands and swing them around. You can dislocate their shoulders, elbows, wrists, you know, all the fun things. So so being yes. careful and, and not getting to the point where you, you start to have it slip out. And um, while we're on the topic, no party tricks. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dr. Bluestein is cheering you on right now. No yep. party tricks. You're not, I mean, just make it sound serious. And again, one of the one of the problems is that when when patients with EDS go to a doctor who's like has probably never seen EDS, gets all excited about it and says, Hey, show me what you can do. That's when you say, No, I'm not going to show it to you because it's not going to help me in any way. It's just going to entertain you. I'm not doing right. it. Well, because remember, stretching your joint will stretch the ligament um, and that's going to damage it forever. And I think this is where Dr. Bluestein has a hack of her own for that topic. Yes, Dr. Bluestein? Oh, yes. I have, <laughs> I'm like, my hack? My hack? Yes. Yes. I have patients when I'm evaluating them, I have them show me or I'll say, you know, do do it at home one last time, have somebody videotape you, take pictures, whatever, store those in a secure place, email them to yourself or whatever, so you can find them easily. And that way you have documentation, because later on, when you have historical joint hypermobility, and you, you know, your Biton score is zero or one or two or something, um, you can at least have this documentation on, on hand. Yes. Is that the hack you were thinking about, Jen? Yes. Yes. So that the doctor says, show me. And you're like, yes, let me get out my phone and I will show you rather right. than doing it 10 right. times. I, yes. You know, even with the Biden score, I get really leery about doing it. And sometimes I'll say, especially the last one where you have to bend over and touch the floor. I'll, I'll, I'll ask them, can you do it? And they'll say yes. And I take their word for it um, because it really makes me very nervous doing these um, hacks. These, this, the Biden score where you have them push, pull their joints the thumb also, I'll just do one side and I'll see if they can touch their forearm. I'll ask them, have you done it in the past? Has it done it on your left side also? And if they say yes, then I'll say, I'll take their word <laughs> for it, obviously. But I try not to do it. Um, and, and I think, so, oh, good. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, I think, I think the challenge with the party tricks is um, when I've had people, you know, bend back the fifth finger, if I'm doing the bite and scorn, and I've had ones where, you know, they literally can touch the finger to the back of their hand. And, 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 and I'll scream, you know, sometimes and I'll be like, what, it doesn't hurt. And the, the difficulty is it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt until, until it does. Right. So that's mm -hmm. why we're trying to encourage people to be, be thoughtful about what it is that they're doing and being proactive. And uh, I sure wish I had worn my ring splint before I got a lot of arthritis in my fingers, Until but it does. I had difficulty getting them to fit. So, you know, it's, it's, it can be really, really hard to do those things, especially if, if something's not hurting, if it's, if it's hurting, pain is a really good motivator, right? So if something is hurting, we can be very motivated to make change, but otherwise, if, if it's not hurting, somebody can tell us to the cows come home, but I feel like it can be really, um, really hard to make any change. And Jen pointed out once that, 
um, with her dancers, it's the dancers who have already been injured that listen to her the most and take her advice. Is that true, Jen? Is that what you said? Yes. I was saying the people that take an injury prevention class are the people who have already <laughs> been injured <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because people think it's never going to happen to me. I don't need to deal with it. And I, I'm sure that if we offered a hypermobility injury prevention or, you know, issue prevention, musculoskeletal issue prevention class, the people who would take it would be the people who had already had dislocations who were, or who were already experiencing pain and didn't want to have it again. Right? right. But up until that point, you're like, I feel great. I'm funny to my friends, <laughs> you know, right. I'm a really good baseball player or a rollerblader or whatever the thing might be. Um, and, and then once you've experienced it, you're like, I don't, I don't want to experience that again. And that's when you start trying to address it. And that's what 6,000 motorcyclists in the United States thought that nothing would happen to them till it happened. And now they're dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Every year, every single year, approximately six thousand motorcyclists die in the united states six thousand or or are there more zeros on there because six thousand honestly sounds low six thousand i mean i have the 21 motorcyclists interesting okay six thousand it's a self-serving prophecy because mm -hmm. you know once they die then 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 it's like other people are going to look at it and say no yeah no thanks but six thousand as compared to the number of people died during 9 11 which is about three thousand and yet, we all think motorcycles are cool. Until <laughs> well, it happens. Some of us don't. <laughs> Until they have to scrape you off the road. Right. So, um, so that so that we we talked so we talked about the arm and hand and I'm pretty sure as soon as we sign up from the podcast, I'll remember a few things that I forgot to tell you, which we will do next podcast. <laughs> and you know what? If that happens. Um, if that happens, we will just pop you back in to do another little mini conversation. Maybe we'll throw it up on our YouTube videos. You guys never know where Dr. Chopra is going to show up for a little guest appearance. Um, today's conversation was such an important one because as you pointed out at the very beginning of this uh, discussion, the upper extremities are the part of the body that we use the most for our everyday life, for cooking and feeding and getting dressed and moving and, and doing work and all those sorts of things. So it's really important to understand um, some of the common things that could occur for people with hypermobility for the upper extremities and way to pursue um, maybe getting some relief or uh, even better prevention for those issues. So we really appreciate you taking the time to dive into these topics with us. Dr. Chopra, we are so grateful for your, your expertise on this subject. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. We always enjoy having you. Yes, we do. Most certainly. And we look forward to seeing everybody next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD podcast. Help us spread the word about joint hypermobility and related disorders by leaving a review and sharing the podcast. This helps raise awareness about these complex conditions. Visit bendybodiespodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories, so please tag us using hashtag bendybuddy. 
You can also find me, Dr. Linda Bluestein, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, all with the ID HypermobilityMD. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. This is not intended to be a substitute for medical diagnosis or advice. Do not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition you have. The opinions shared are that of the guest and do not necessarily represent the views of the hosts or any particular organization. Thank you for being a part of our community, and we will catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.